you need to get quantity in the top of your funnel. If you only have quantity and then you have really good filters. So then the ones that come out the bottom that you actually invest the time in are going to be your highest possible like quality. What is going to be the criteria that we, they need to pass through for us to invest time in trying to sell to them? I thought about dating in the same way. Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for female founders and founders-to-be. If you're smart, savvy, and ambitious, then Lady Brain, you are in the right place. Get ready for a dose of inspo, hard-hitting truths, and actionable insights. Strap in. Do you sometimes feel like your business has taken over every aspect of your life? This is the story of Rebecca Campbell, founder of Hey You, a payment and booking app designed for restaurants and cafes. Rebecca's sole focus was on building her business. She'd raised money in Silicon Valley, the app was rapidly onboarding new restaurants, her team was growing, and she'd established a strong profile in the startup world. By all external measures, she was a success. But there was something missing. 10 years into building her business, she realized she hadn't been on a single date. She'd neglected her personal life and at 34 and single, decided to apply what she'd learned in business to finding a partner. She even designed a dating sales funnel and then wrote a book about it. This book is 138 Dates, a tale about finding a lifelong partner as well as finding herself. We've read it, we loved it, and we highly recommend it to anyone that wants to redefine the role their business plays in their personal life. We want you to paint us a bit of a picture um, about what your life was like as an entrepreneur, you know, you've founded a couple of businesses, you've been in the music industry as well as tech. Um, these are, you know, quite unique industries as well. What was your life like when you started your first business in music? I mean, I'd always started businesses right from school. So when I was at school, I was either you know, raising money for charity or, um, you know, I, I got like lots of paper rounds and then farmed them out to my friends. So I was kind of like, so I, I don't know. I just always imagined myself as someone who would start something as opposed to someone who would work for somebody else. So I um, wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. I organized a concert when I was 19 at university to raise awareness of youth suicide in my hometown of Wellington um, and all the support organizations. And through that, I got Neil Finn to play and his manager offered me a job. So I went and worked for him for a year. And then and then the, the experience of being an employee didn't work well for me. I was a terrible employee because I always had all these opinions um, about what we should be doing. And then my boss said, you know, you should probably start your own business. And so a year after um, working for him, I started my own band management company. So, yeah, I think I was just, that was just kind of, I don't know if it's a genetic thing, but I was just always going to be an entrepreneur. Must have been a pretty crazy world managing artists. What was some of the hardest things about starting a business in that industry? So many things. (laughs) I think like great things and and hard things. So, So the great thing is there's not really a lot of rules in music. So you have to do everything, but you've got to figure out everything from scratch. Mm. And you're kind of, I didn't realize this at the time, but I was building these brands that had a product that nobody actually needed. So we weren't solving any kind of customer need. They were, we had to make people want to like be a part of our community and kind of like feel like it was, you know, a, a cool artist that they wanted to associate themselves with. So I think, you know, and I learned so much, so I had to, I had to be the accountant. I had to kind of plan the tours. I had to do all the branding. Um, there was a lot about working with musicians who all had their own kind of creative. <laughs> so, yeah, there was just so much. Um, I mean, I definitely learned the importance of um, being on the journey with like having, having a kind of shared vision for what it is that you're trying to do. I think that was probably my biggest mistake was when my vision was much bigger or in a different direction to the artists. That was where, that was where it was particularly hard. Mm. Mm. And you moved from music into tech and there was one line in your book, which I loved, which was, I decided to start a tech company after watching the Facebook <laughs> movie in 2010 with a good idea and a lot of work. Maybe I could build a billion dollar business. And I love this quote because it has a certain naivety to it. <laughs> How how naive were you at the time? And do you think that naivety actually played into some of that traction and that momentum that you were able to build for your tech businesses? I was extremely naive. That's a true story. I did watch that movie and think, 
know, I was looking for something else because I didn't see myself working in music for the rest of my life. Um, and when I watched that movie, I was like, wow, this is really like, this is the next thing. This is kind of like music, but it's, I can actually build something that's my own. That really appealed to me as well. So in, in music, I realized after a very long time that I was building other people's businesses and that I could be fired from those businesses when I made them successful, whereas I wanted to build something where I could be kind of in control and make some of the decisions. So yeah, tech appealed to me. Um, and I think the fact that it, it could, you could build something that would scale globally. And I mean, a billion was never about money. It was just about building something that people used and loved and that would grow this kind of a scale of change that you can bring about with technology. That was what was appealing. And tell us about the tech business and, you know, some of those similarities between the music industry and the tech industry, because there is a part in the book that you talk about um, getting your first 10,000 fans. And yeah. I love that because it is almost like, you know, you built, you, you obviously have fans in, you know, the music, in the music space when you're a musician. Did you apply that methodology to, you know, your tech business? I did. I mean, I learned a lot in music about why people share and that was quite, that was important. So you know, people, you know, you think that, I know we worked out that you think people share because they want you to have a great experience of this particular band or this, the, this song is going to move you. But actually sharing music is a lot about, you know, having status and being seen to be kind of ahead of the curve. And so I definitely used that knowledge in the whole way that I designed the product for, our, for, for Posse when we built the kind of recommendation app. Um, yeah, I think I learned a lot about community building and music and applied a lot of those lessons to, to, to tech. The thing that was, I noticed it was different was in music, at least there are some parameters, like the way you make money is through selling concert tickets and selling records and mm -hmm. publishing. Whereas tech, it's even more open because you build something and then you've got to figure out there's, it's completely open. How are you going to monetize it? Um, mm. Yeah. Everything has to be designed from scratch. Like the whole industry that you're operating in is being designed from scratch as opposed to like you're creating something within a set of kind of pre-established constraints. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about Posse and then Hey You. Sure. So the original, I mean, there's kind of two versions of Posse. The first version of Posse was an, an uh, a website that people could use to promote concert tickets. So the idea was you could, I would got, got tours on board because I was very connected in the music industry and advertising and music was you know, very hopelessly wasteful and that you had no idea whether your posters or your ads had any impact. And so the idea was you could get fans to promote links to concerts and then make commissions, which made a lot of sense. Um, the business model was flawed in many ways. As soon as we started it, we worked out that like the, you know, the client, which is the tour. So all of our clients were going to burn after eight weeks because that's when the tour ended. And so this kind of like the sales, it, it was expensive to bring each of those tours on because we had to go out and sell to the promoter and then the venues and make sure we had all the ticketing links lined up and things. So, uh, you know, that just like learning about business models that even though it was quite successful and that it sold a lot of tickets, we were never going to be able to make it profitable. So I sold it. I say sold and that was sold for a small amount of money um, and one team member to Future Music who I think they still run it mm. under the brand Future Fans. And then I took a lot of the learnings and that I had built the beginning of a really great tech team and created Posse kind of point two, which was about um, recommending shops. It was quite similar, but instead of recommending bands, you're recommending your favorite cafes and restaurants. And, um, and that grew to be pretty big actually around the world um, but it had no revenue model mm -hmm. so we had a good engaged number of I think it was like 60,000 stores at one point and quite engaged customers as well but we never could figure out how to um, who we were going to charge and how so we added payments to it by merging with Beat the Q and then we we're going to because we had two companies coming together we rebranded it to Hey You so that and that still operates today mm. in particularly in Sydney Melbourne Brisbane so you spend a lot of time and you speak about this in the book and you tell some incredible stories about yep. your quest to raise money for Hey You. And yes. there was a particular story where um, it was your first meeting at Sequoia Capital, which is one of the you know, biggest <laughs> firms in the world. Can you tell us a little bit about that meeting and your headspace at the time? You spoke a little bit about being really like scared and overwhelmed with that yep. experience. 
I mean, I was all new to this. I mean, I was a band manager and I was in my early 30s and well, maybe I was like 31, 32. And I had spoken at a couple of angel events in Sydney and that was where I raised my, I guess it was a seed round. It was also pretty early in the in the kind of tech ecosystem. So there weren't a whole lot of people. You, know, you didn't go to events and see other entrepreneurs that had done it before. I felt very much like I was doing things the first time. Um, and then... I connected with someone in Sydney who had lots of connections with the, who, who invested, who had lots of connections with the funds and he introduced me. And so I trotted off to San Francisco and I had meetings with all the big tech companies. Um, it was amazing now to think that I had got all those meetings. It was just because there wasn't a whole lot of people doing it, I think. Mm. Um, but yeah, I went in, I had my PowerPoint prepared and I had rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it. And then I sat down and, and the, I remember the, the VC person, Brian Shearer, who was the actual person I used in the book. It was a tr- true recollection of that meeting um, saying, you know, I don't want to see you. I don't want to see your PowerPoint. I always want you to tell me about your vision. And I was completely thrown because I had rehearsed this speech and I was trying to like remember it without my slides. And it was a bit of a disaster. Um, and we ended up going back to the PowerPoint and it was fine. But, um, but yeah, I just learned, I think, the importance of, you know, my presentation was quite technical and it was, we're going to do this and this and this. Um, and it was very step-by-step plan. It wasn't inspiring. And so I learned the importance. I think there's Melanie from Canva plays a big role in my um, in my journey, but in the book as well. And she, she and I watched her pitch and it was all about the vision and it was coming from her heart. And she really knew the, the problem space that she was in, um, she had this very clear vision of the future um, and and it wasn't a step-by-step, this is what we're going to do, then this is what we're going to do. It was like, this is what the future is going to look like and this is the role we're going to play in it. And um, and I remember watching that and then I changed the way that I approached pitching for capital after that and had a lot more success. <laughs> Anna and I talk about this quite often, you know, leading with the why and your vision versus leading with kind of how you're going to execute on something. Do you, are you an inherently kind of vi- a visionary or do you kind of struggle with that? Like, do you have to remind yourself, lead with the why, tap into, you know, your heart um, and where you want to go? Um, I mean, I think I always thought I was, but then I've seen other people like Mel, for example, mm. who are much more visionary than I am. I am probably more of a, um, like, start from where you are, like, what are your goals, mm. how are you going to achieve it step by step and kind of just like methodically do it. Mm. You'll see that in my dating strategy in the book um, more than I am kind of like this, yeah, thinking five or 10 years ahead. Like, I wish I was more thinking five, 10 years ahead and being able to, to see the future and build something in the future because I think that is a much better way to build a business, but I, that's not me naturally. It's almost like the, the top-down versus bottom-up approach. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think it's interesting because that step-by-step mm. process, that methodical approach to problem-solving is obviously something that you leveraged in your personal life as well. Yeah in your dating life. And we want to dive into that. But firstly, we want to know, you obviously spent so much time and energy and effort building your businesses and your career. How did that affect your personal life? Yeah, well, I think the way that I have approached life, and I do not do this anymore, but the way that I approached kind of the first 30 years of my life or 35 years was I figured out quite early that I'm um, a hard worker and I can stick to my goals. So if I say I'm going to do something, I'll do it, no matter at what cost. Um, and that is quite a powerful thing to realize. I mentioned that concept that I organized when I was 19. That was kind of a really big realization from that because it was so hard to put together. I had to raise all the sponsorship. There were so many times where I thought it wasn't going to happen. Artists pulled out. and you know, But in the end, it came through just because I kept going. And that I worked out was kind of my superpower was I could set my mind to something and I knew that I was not the kind of person that would give up. And so therefore kind of anything is possible, um, which is super empowering. You're powerful, super powerful, but it's also not necessarily like doesn't lead to a very happy life. Um, so I got, so the, the place I was at was, I was 34 and I had worked incredibly hard yeah because I had set myself these goals and I'd just woken up and I just focused every day on these goals, you know, and I had some grief in my early life as well with my 
first partner um, passing away. So I think I shelved the relationship stuff to one side and I just focused relentlessly on if I had to raise capital, I would just pitch and pitch and pitch and pitch until I got there. Um, and yeah, I'd say I was growing unha- like more and more unhappy. It wasn't obvious because I'd keep myself busy, but yeah, times like Christmas and summer holidays, mm. that would be when it really caught up on me that I didn't have a lot of friends like, <laughs> and I didn't have a relationship. My friends were going away and they had developed these personal lives. And yeah, the business, yeah, I also just saw people having these lives and that their business or their career was a part of their life, but it was a, quite a small part of their life in terms of what was actually really important to them when you got to talk, talking to them about you know, their life in general. And then I'll be like, well, I don't have any of that other stuff. I've just got my career. And I think I didn't want to, I realized I didn't want to live like that forever. I wanted to make a change. And so I was willing to make a really bold change to, to you know, try and find happiness and live the second part of my life kind of differently. I think that's going to speak to a lot of people. I mean, Caitlin and I have been having this conversation a lot over the last six months, which is, Even, you know, during the pandemic, it's been so easy as business owners to just focus on the business. You know, it's a distraction. Um, It feels, um, it gives you a sense of purpose. But it's not until you sort of stop or you have a moment where you really wake up and go, oh, my gosh, like I don't have anything outside of this. Um, And it can be quite a sort of slap in the face yeah was it that moment (laughs) was that moment a slap in the face for you as well when you had that realization yeah I mean it was a gradual thing that kind of crept up on me and I would try and shove it away by keeping myself busy and by Mm -hmm. focusing going telling myself that I was doing well in all these other aspects of my life so I didn't need to think about that Um, and I was kind of embarrassed too if I'm honest I never would reach out and tell anyone you know having these you know, I'm, I'm unhappy. I would never admit that. I had kind of developed this, you know, what you call a kind of front for the world of the successful businesswoman and I would get up and speak mm. at conferences. And so to say I'm struggling and I'm afraid to go on dates and I really want a partner and a family and I'm getting older and I'm worried about my fertility, like that would just be so, like, I don't know, kind of, I felt like it would unravel everything that I tried to, to build, but I guess... Yeah, it crept up and it crept up and then it reached a point where I was, I kind of, the fear of missing out on the life that I wanted versus the kind of embarrassment, like the, I guess the priorities kind of mm. wrestled it and, and then I was like, right, okay, this is the problem that I'm going to solve now. I want to drill down into that. You said that you identify and probably felt comfortable with this I, this notion of being a successful mm-hmm. businesswoman, like you, you could wear that. Why do you think you felt more comfortable in that space than, say, other roles that you could assume, you know, as a, as a partner, a, a, a wife, a mother, a friend, a sister, all of those kind of roles? Why do you think the, the business role sat comfortably, more comfortably with you? I think it's about what you, you know, what you think you're good at, you polish. And so I just, I worked out quite early on that I could pull things together I could work hard. I could get people to, you know, whether it was putting on a concert or, you know, convincing bands to let me manage them. I could do that. And so I just polished it and polished it and polished it because that was what I was good at. And the stuff that I felt like I wasn't so good at, you know, being a good friend, connecting with people, building romantic relationships, being vulnerable, all that. I didn't polish that side of my life because I didn't feel like I was good at it. And so the more that I worked on the stuff that I thought I was good at, the more the other stuff got left behind. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. And I, and I love this line in here in the book. It says, I think women should voice what they want in life without fear of judgment. And I think you know, mm. you kind of nailed it. You said being vulnerable can be really hard. And some of those areas, especially when you are building a successful business and you, know, you, you want to be perceived as one thing, it can be hard to then also say, hey, I do want a family or I do want kids or mm. I do want um, other you know, things in my life that, that sit outside you know, be, becoming a successful businesswoman. Yeah, 100%. I mean, when I started writing the book, 
I remember listening to a podcast and it was about these two, it was these two really successful businesswomen overseas and they hadn't had children and they were talking about getting the uteruses removed and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it was like supposed to be empowering, but I just remember thinking, oh my God, what are people going to think of me when I write this book about like how I actually wanted to have a partner and I couldn't figure it out. And it's just like the most anti-feminist message. But then I just told myself that there must be other women out there that, that are in my position of, you know, it does, it maybe if that's what you want if you don't want to have a family and like that's not important that's fine like that's great mm. go ahead and you know get your uterus removed like that's awesome be proud of that but um but i don't think that it should be shameful to say that actually what i really want in my life is love and a family and that's going to be my most important thing and i can still have a business and that's also going to be important to me but um yeah i just thought there's i don't there's no sh- yeah that there should be power in that. Mm. And that's what I wanted to make my book about. Like that, yeah, it's not, it's not shameful. It's, it's powerful to say what you want, no matter what it is that you want. So for our listeners who haven't had the privilege of reading the book, Caitlin and I absolutely loved it. And a lot of what you wrote in there spoke to us. Um, can you share with our audience what the book's about? I mean, you had this realization that you'd been focusing too much on the business, you wanted to find a partner, and you took quite a savvy business-like <laughs> approach to finding mm-hmm. a partner. So how did you do it? What was your strategy? Well, I mean, I took what I know that I am good at and that is setting a goal and sticking to it. <laughs> um, so my strategy was, you I mean, I didn't know what it was going to take. And I th- I had a sense at the beginning that I was going to have to not change myself, but that there was likely parts of myself I would need to unravel, I think, mm. um, to become probably more myself. But I didn't know how to do that. So I, I had a sense at the beginning that there was going to be a lot that I was going to learn, but I didn't know you know, where to learn that or who to learn that from. So I approached it in the, in the only way that I know, knew, which was to set a goal you know, that was kind of measurable and achievable. So a smart goal, which was to go on one date every week for a year. Um, And then I would learn as I went. And so, yeah, so in the end, the book is about the journey of of the three years of going on one date every week. Um, This is some disastrous relationship experiences (laughs) in it. Um, And and at the same time as building the business. So, and yeah, yeah, there's some, there's some characters that in it, like, you know, like Melanie, I mentioned before that you'd recognize and and her advice, which I apply, you know, take what I'm learning dating and I'm applying it back to business and taking what I'm learning in business and applying it back to dating and, yeah, gradually unraveling myself, I think, is that it's becoming the right person as much as it is finding the right person. I think it's those two things oh, um, I in love parallel. That. Yes, it is. It is. I love what you just said. It's it's just it's about finding yourself as well as finding a partner, and that's so important. And and it was mm-hmm. a journey. You went on 138 dates, as of as the book as the book indicates, until you found your partner. Can you talk us through um, designing this strategy? Like what was the sales funnel? What what did you take from uh, business that you could apply to finding and going on 138 dates until you found your partner? Right. I mean, at the beginning, I didn't have a sales strategy. My strategy okay. was just to go on the just to go on the dates, and then I slowly developed this, this the sales funnel yep. kind of as I went through um, because I learned pretty quickly, you know, that when I went on a date that was just so hopeless that it was never going to go anywhere, and it's a bad situation for everyone when you know mm. is a nice person, but it just wasn't a good fit, and then you kind of waste everybody's time and you feel guilty like telling someone that you don't think it's a good fit, whereas you could have kind of filtered that person or that date out. Yep. Um, so, I mean, I definitely thought, I think a lot about optimization, building businesses. <laughs> and so um, <laughs> I thought, okay, I've got 52 slots in my year. Yep. And so I want to optimize my chances of like each, each person being a good fit for me. And so that was when I started thinking about filters and sales funnels. Because it's quite similar. So at, at Hey You, we have had a sales funnel. We were just learning and building a sales funnel to go, okay, what are the, it's a payments platform for cafes, if anyone isn't aware of it. Um, so we're like, we're selling, so we look at you know, all the cafes in Australia and then we look at well, what are the ones that are the most likely to be successful on Hey You and what is kind of the criteria 
um, that we, they need to pass through for us to invest time in trying to sell to them. And so I, I thought about dating in the same way. So the first thing I knew about sales funnels is you need to get quantity in the top of your funnel. If you, and you have mm. quantity and then you have really good filters. So then the ones that come out the bottom that you actually invest the time in are going to be your highest possible like quality. Mm. And so, so I thought like the time I was just on eHarmony and that was one channel. So, you know, in business, we were like looking at what are different point of sales partners and things. How can we bring in different channels to bring in more cafes? So I thought, what are different channels that we can bring into, well, that I could bring into give me more dates. So that was when I started asking friends for introductions. I um, joined RSVP at the time. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. There, there was, yeah, uh, I signed up for courses. So I just wanted to maximize the number in the top of the funnel. And then I started thinking about my filters. And so I thought, well, I should do, um, I mean, I designed different ways of kind of assessing profiles as to whether they were likely to be a good fit. Mm-hmm. And then I would message and I would message, you know, I'd actually build some template messages, which I put in the book as well. And they, I kind of like, um, you know, just like when you're doing email marketing, you yeah. test different messaging to see which ones get the best open rate. Yeah. So I would test different initial contact messages to see which ones got the best, most replies. <laughs> um, and then I kind of got to the most optimized message. <clears throat> and then, um, uh, you know, I messaged back and forth a few times. Can't message too many times. Otherwise, you waste time on poor prospects. Um, <laughs> and then um, and then I'd ask for a phone call because a phone call is, is the best filter. So you don't want to go on a, you know, a, a, you've got 52 slots, right, one a week. So I don't want I wanted to have a couple of phone calls, like two or three phone calls. And then if they were good, I'd, I'd go on dates. So, so and, I, and then I got to a bit of a routine to it. So I, I, I looked at it like an extracurricular activity where, you know, Sunday afternoons were phone call afternoons. So I was always doing my phone calls on Sunday afternoons. And um, Thursdays was my date night. So I thought, you know, maybe you don't do a date on Friday. I ended up meeting my husband on a Friday night. But anyway, um, uh-huh. <laughs> that was my plan. It was like th- every Thursday night date, I ended up going to the same two places um, that I found that were kind of close to my house. They had good lighting that weren't too noisy. Like, so it was going to set myself up to have the, yeah, I guess the best chance. You sound oh, like a very so structured good. person. <laughs> yeah. Have you always been that way? Have you always found that structure helps you feel like you're in a sense of control? Mm. Um, I mean, I think I'm methodical. I mean, I'm a very messy person and I wouldn't say I'm massively organized, but if I need to achieve a goal, I'm quite methodical about the way that I approach it. Yeah. Did it, did taking that um, methodical approach remove some of the I don't know magic in dating or maybe you know opportunities for uh chance and serendipity like did you yeah did that ever happen did you ever feel like oh you know maybe I just want to I don't know take Um, a chance on someone that maybe didn't fit the criteria yeah, I think I, I was constantly examining the criteria as to whether I was mm. looking. I was looking for the at the beginning. I was looking for the wrong things. So, I mean, for example, tall. I worked out like that was important to me. I thought from a physical attraction perspective. But then, uh, then I went on a date with someone who said they only dated blondes, and I was like, oh, that's like a house. That's so um, um, superficial, like an attribute that you can't control." And then, so I was yeah. like, "But hang on, how's tall not superficial?" And so, and then I removed that, and then I started, I don't know, dating slightly shorter men than I was before. And then I was like, oh, this is kind of potentially an untapped market because (laughs) I actually found that, um, yeah, I don't know, but just, I just found that, yeah, I don't know, you've got to do a lot of sifting, right? Yeah. That's part of it. I mean, it is a lot about becoming the right person, which I think is the heart of the book, but it's also about sifting. And yeah, I wanted to make sure that I didn't have criteria that was going to rule out like your potential gold. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, much like business, you obviously get rejected in the dating game. It can be pretty harsh. Yep. What was one of the hardest rejections you experienced dating? I mean, I think early on the rejections were hard because I was in a pretty like fragile. I was had dating for the first time in you know ten years. Mm. I'd actually never dated because I'd only had one boyfriend who who was very tragically killed and so I I hadn't ever been on dates so Mm. it was scary to put myself out there and I think there was one date 
which was the lawyer dude who was, <laughs> I think he was my third date and I was so excited. Like, and he seemed like he really liked me and I was kind of like, you know, I felt like maybe I was a bit, he was a bit out of my league and, but he seemed to really like me and then he never called me back. And that, that was really hard. Um, but I think I just got, I think I toughened up over time and that there's some great advice. So I saw a psychologist through the journey and I put a lot of our conversations in the book. Actually, when I wrote the book, I went and sat down and had coffee with her and tried to recreate the conversations that we had so I could get her voice into the book and make sure I captured all the advice correctly. Um, but she told me to think of myself like a product and that um, there's someone out there who's shopping just for me with my unique set of features. Mm. And if someone is like, you know, if I go on a date with someone and they don't like me or they don't contact me back, so maybe they're just not looking for me. They're looking for something else or maybe they're not even buying at the moment. Maybe they're just browsing. Like she brought up this idea of ripe and men being ripe at a certain particular point in time when they want to settle down. Um, so, and then that, that kind of took the sting a bit out mm. of the rejections instead of, yeah, feeling like they were rejecting me and there was something inherently wrong with me. It was just more like, okay, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm just not the right fit for them and I will find someone who's the, I'm the right fit for and they're the right fit for me so long as I keep looking. Did it ever yeah. feel like a game? Like did you ever turn the rejection into a game or did you ever think about this as a game you were kind of playing? No, like it was serious for me. I wanted mm. to have, I really wanted to find love and a family. I wanted to be, mm. I kind of gave up to be honest on having a family towards the end because I was 37 and I just thought it wasn't going to happen, but I definitely wanted to find love. And I, so no, I didn't. And every time I rejected someone, it was hard. Mm. I, I was careful to always, you know, always, I was you know, texted or if it'd been just one date or, or had a phone call or a conversation. Oh. I never wanted to leave people hanging like you know I had been left so many times hanging yeah. but um but no it was never a game for me it was always about I really wanted to find love it was the, I, I, it was the most important thing to me at that time and I'm so glad now because yeah my family and my partner is everything it really is Aww, it really is that. the most important thing so yeah. yeah and then how um you know obviously we t- spoke about personal rejection how did that compare to say one of your biggest rejections in business were there parallels there was it easier you know is it easier to get rejected in business uh yeah they're both hard no it definitely Mm. feels quite similar Mm. when you go and pitch to like you know an investor and they they always seem well not always but usually they seem enthusiastic and you know integrated and then you never hear back and that's hard Mm. but it's definitely harder when it's it's personal I mean you can kind of write it off as being it's this is not the right business model for them, but I think they still really liked me. Um, whereas, um, whereas when you're dating, it's yeah, yeah. There's that like root there. There's that kind of you know you can remove yourself from the business a little bit, you know. So yeah. I can understand that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was probably, it was harder, but um, and it was also more meaningful. I mean, mm. I wanted to raise money, but it's not. It wasn't the end of the world for me if I wasn't able to, or if I had to just keep pitching. Whereas I really wanted yeah. to find a relationship. Yeah. Mm. Yep. How did you kind of evolve as a person throughout this journey? You said at the start of our chat that the book's about your 138 dates, but it's really about sort of finding yourself and unraveling yourself as a person. And I think building a business is such a hugely challenging personal journey for founders. And, mm. you know, this experience for you, you can read it, you, you really evolve as a person. Mm. What did you learn about yourself and how did you, who was the person that came out the other side? Um, so much. I, I, I think I learned to kind of like and accept myself. That was the big, there's some technical things, which I'll talk about in a second, but I think, and it's easy to say to people, you've got to like yourself because otherwise no one's going to like you, but it's actually really hard to do. You've got to kind of, for me, I had to go through that process there was nothing anybody could have told me or any kind of insights I could have had, even from reading the exact book that I've written that I think would have removed the need to go through that process and to have all those kind of questioning thoughts. And mm. I guess realizing that I, I am okay by myself. Um, I mean, yeah, so many people told me you're okay by yourself. You've got to believe you're okay by yourself, but it didn't sink in until I realized that actually I'm okay. And, um, 
yeah, and then and then Rod came along. Um, I think this another important thing was about choosing. So, I mean, I was always looking for kind of some kind of magic, perfect mm. moment. I think it's the same, and I think I'd been chasing that in everything in my life. Like, I wanted to have this business that was a perfect business, and. I wanted to wear like clothes that I really loved and, you know, I don't know. And I wanted to find a partner that was going to be my soulmate. And so I think I was always chasing this kind of, um, it's, you could say, I would have told you 10 years ago, it was about high expectations, but actually it was about yeah, chasing some kind of, because I didn't think I was perfect. I yeah. had to compensate by having all these perfect things in my life, I guess, like a perfect looking business a perfect partner um, and then recognizing, I mean, my friend gave me some great advice when I met Rod was you found someone who's like got some, you know, they've got good values or a nice person that like you, they can show they can commit to things, you know, to choose them. It's not like it's, they're not going to be perfect and it's mm -hmm. definitely, it's not a perfect relationship um, and he's not a perfect, no, I'm not perfect, but, um, but you choose each other and, um, and, once we've chosen, we make it work and we put, don't put any of our energy into thinking, is this the right person? Um, you know, maybe if there was somewhat different relationship might be better suited for me. I don't know if he's really my soulmate. There must be someone magical out there. That's, there's no magical person. There's no soulmate. There's just someone that you like and you want to spend time with and then you choose them. And I think that that also applies to business. So I had a business partner and there was lots in the, you know, there was lots of great stuff about, our relationship as a, as a partnership, but there was stuff that really irritated me and, and I won't go into it, but I constantly thought there's someone who's a better business partner for me. And in the end, there, this is before I met Rod, but that relationship broke up and it was horrible for the business. And it was a horrible personal experience. And I regret it. You know, it's one of my biggest regrets of my mm -hmm. life now. Um, but I hadn't learned that lesson of, you know, this is not the perfect business partner, but there is no perfect business partner. Mm. You just have to choose this person and then you've got to put all your energy into making it work and not think, is there someone else? Um, so I think that, yeah, that is, was a really powerful lesson for me, both in terms of my relationship and in terms of working with others in business. Just to clarify, Anna, I've never thought there's someone else out there for me. <laughs> no, no neither have I. Yeah, great. <laughs> But, but it is important that what you said about working on it and, yeah. and, and turning up and making that choice every day, we choose to work on our partnership, on our friendship. We've been friends for, you know, 20 plus years. And so there's, there are all these added layers of complication and we choose to show up every day and work on each other, ourselves and the business, mm. which is awesome. Um, I love that. Is there any regret looking back on spending in those, those kind of, as you said, the first 30 years of your life, you know, not focusing more so on your personal life? I guess you didn't, I guess you don't know what you don't know. And as you said, you evolved and you were able to shed this perfectionism, which I'm sure was such a nice mm. uh, relief. But, you know, I guess looking back, do you regret those first 30 years and how you approach life? Mm -hmm. And, you know, either way, it doesn't, doesn't matter. But what advice would you give other people that may be trotting down mm. this same path that are just single-mindedly focusing on one area of their life? Yeah. I mean, it's hard. It's, you know, I wish I could say I didn't have any regrets, but I have loads of regrets. Mm -hmm. I definitely regret not having more fun, I think, in my 20s particularly. Yeah, like I just was fun. never someone who would, I worked in the music industry and I never partied. I never like, I, never, <laughs> I was so focused on, um, you know, everything that I had to do to kind of be successful and have, uh, um, I don't know. I just, mm -hmm. yeah, I just wish I'd had more more holidays. I wish I'd traveled more. I wish I'd taken a year off and seen the world and hadn't gone straight into building a business. Um, I wish I'd like, you know, not stuffed up my first beautiful relationship because I thought that there was, you know, someone out there who was the perfect person. And I looked at his things that were not perfect about, about him. And uh, I don't know. I just, there's so much that I do regret. I think the advice that I would give, I think I was looking to others as role models too much. So I looked at, I mean, I remember looking at Mia Friedman. I had lunch with when I was like in my early twenties and she was like, so I worked on the this pop stars project, mm -hmm. and um, and I just remember thinking she was amazing, and that like I felt like I wish I could be a bit more like her, and that 
but I was not like her. And I'm, and I read business books and thought I should be more like other founders, but I wasn't like those other founders. So I think what I have really learned is, um, to look kind of not look at who you want to be in relation to anyone else, but to actually not even look at who you want to be, but to look at who you are and go, no, I am like, I'm a writer. <laughs> it's like, I'm not, um, and I'm, I'm not, necess- it's not necessarily good at, I'm, there's lots of things that I'm not that good at, and I'm never going to be good at some of those things. And so I should stop working on trying to fix myself to be more like how I think I should be. And I should look at what I am good at and what I enjoy doing and just, and do that. Mm. And to do that, you need space and you need time. And I think this is something that Caitlin and I have experienced and learned over the last six or so months is when you're so heavily involved in the doing and mm. you're so busy, you don't actually have time to think about what it is that you you mm. actually want, not what other people's version of success is. And it can be yeah. really hard to create that time and space in your life to figure that out. I think that's exactly right. I think I kept myself so busy. I can feel it now because I'm doing some work. Um, you know, some, some business consulting work again, and I can feel it. I'll go a whole week and I'm so focused on getting from meeting to meeting and you know, getting this presentation done and, the, and you, you don't stop and think and look at your heart and go, you know, was that the best use of my time this week? Am I happy? So I wish I'd done that more. That's, that's probably my, um, my, my advice. Yeah, it's great advice. We were, um, yeah, we actually just put a post up on um, our Instagram recently about time and that sense of rushing. And the advice was when you feel yourself kind of lurching, physically lurching forward, it's like stop, slow down, catch yourself and ask yourself, are you spending your time in the right way? Mm. Are you moving with intent? Um, and so that's, you know, I think, yeah, you, you know, both right. It's, it's, it's sometimes you just get so caught up in the busyness of life that you actually ignore, you know, what's, what's true to you and what's important to you. Mm, absolutely. Mm. I feel like you can feel when you're speaking and, and working from your heart, this is mm. your head. And so mm. I try and catch myself now as like, okay, I'm in a head mode today and it feels very different. And I really, I guess now I'm striving to be in a heart mode as much as I possibly can be because that's what makes me happy and fulfilled. And I actually think it's where I do my best work as well. What does it feel like? What does the difference feel like Mm. for you, head versus heart? It's exactly that. It's exactly like I'm – I actually feel like I'm talking to you from my heart right now. You know, if I was doing a business, some kind of strategic presentation, talking about, I don't know, growth marketing or something, I would be talking from my head. And I can feel that shift. Um, or if I'm sitting down and I'm writing, I'm always writing from my heart and I'm, I can, you know, sit there and I'll cry and I'll laugh and I'm just connected to what I'm doing. Um, but and when you're talking from your head, I'm kind of like, I'm there and I'm intellectually connecting, but it's a different, different type of connection. I don't know if that's advice for everyone because there are some people who probably work really well from their head and, Mm. um, and really enjoy that space, but I'm a heart person and I've just. I think I've only learned that in the last, um, well, I've identified it probably in the last few years, particularly as I wrote my book. Love that. And and it may be, you're right, you know, people have certain preferences or they, you know, it's finding that kind of balance between head and heart, but even setting your days up, like this is a head day and it could be more strategic. It could be, mm-hmm. you know, those, those kind of tasks that you just need to get done. And then there could be a heart day, which may be, you know, for you, it's obviously writing. Um, for other people, it could be, you know, a physical activity that kind of, yeah, you, you lose yourself and you tune into your heart. So that's cool. I like setting up the day. It could be a head day or a heart day. Yeah. I think also, and I talked about in the book that kind of pitching for capital Mm. and being kind of talking about this kind of methodical planning step-by-step, you know, this is how we're going to do this versus being more visionary and and genuinely lit up by the mission of the business. And when I started speaking, when I started really getting excited about the mission of the business and the difference that it was going to create for people's lives and our case, small business owners, that was when I started to get traction with capital raising. It was when I was able to hire really good people, you know, inspire the team to work really, you know, on the on the problem. So I think, yeah, it's not just about you don't have to be a writer or um, <laughs> to to work to, to operate from that space. Hundred percent. I think it's about being connected to purpose. Actually, oh, I was literally yeah, about to yeah. say that. <laughs> yeah. I was like, preach. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, being connected to your purpose. Yeah. comes back to that, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Quite often. Mm. Yes. 
So we have a couple of wrap-up questions we would like to ask you. We really believe in this idea of, you know, it's the small things that matter, the small ideas, the small changes, the small actions which really compound to create something amazing. What has been one idea or one thing that you've heard, seen, experienced in your life that has completely changed your perspective? So there's something which was a quote by Bill Gates, who I know is you know, it's not super popular at the moment, but um, but he does say some very smart things. And somebody asked him what what's a good definition of success for him. And he said success to him is how much people who you love love you back. And I thought that was a really good definition of success. And it started to, yeah, I mean, of course, I'm always focused on my kids and my husband and stuff, but that made me really think that is what success is to me. Um, And I think that kind of reframed that idea of success. Mm. Yeah, I like that. I love that. I really like that. Um, What's one piece of maybe slightly unconventional advice that you want to leave our listeners with? Sorry, I don't know if this is unconventional. It's just something that I've been thinking a lot about recently. And, you know, it's these kind of things, it's things that mm. are constantly evolving. And that is, I mentioned before, looking to others in terms of role models and business. Mm. But I think looking to others at what they do and what they can do is not helpful. So, and I'm a mum now with two young kids and I'm constantly going, should I be going back and working you know, in an office and I could write, or I look, you know, that author wrote a book and she worked and she wrote in her lunch hour, but I find it really hard to do that. Or and that mum, she's a great mum, but, and she's working. I could do that. Or she's at home. And she, so I'm, I'm constantly thinking because someone else can do it, doesn't, and I've worked out because someone else can do it or does it, doesn't mean that I should do it or that I can do it. Mm. So it's, it's kind of stopping any kind of, um, looking to others at what they're doing and comparing and thinking you can do something because somebody else can. You can only look to yourself and go, what do you want to do? What do I want to do? And what can I, what can I do? Which is going to be different to anybody else. We're all individuals. Um, And yeah, so I've I've been thinking a lot about trying to stop myself from doing that. Mm, And I guess coming back into that heart space. Really? Yeah. 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 I go, I am not, yeah, I'm not the same as that mom who can do that. <laughs> I'm not the same as that author who can do that. I'm me and I will, um, I will do what I can and I'll do what I love and, that, and that's going to be me. So Anna and I both loved this conversation and we have a couple of lessons. So the first one is sell the why, not the how. So I remember when Rebecca was saying she was in Silicon Valley and she was pitching for some money, she had a very well-rehearsed pitch deck um, and, you know, in the room he's just like, I don't, stop, 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 I don't get it, like sell me the vision. So I definitely think that, you know, people don't buy what you do, they buy, they buy why you do it. That is so critical. It's so much more emotional. Mm. It's in. And I think when you understand this, you really understand marketing. Totally. And I think that's why we've designed all of our courses, all of our workshops, every single person that we work with, we always start with the why, the purpose, and then the vision. Because I think that is the foundation of any business. Like you can do the step-by-step plan, but if you don't have a compelling way to communicate why why you're doing it and what you're building, you're not going to get as far as you could if you really like, you know, sell that, sell that dream. So I love that one as well. I also loved how she spoke about um, being there being times in your life to operate with your head and your heart. And this one is quite personal for me because <laughs> I've always been someone who's led from my head, like always taking a very intellectual approach to things, very structured like she is, very like methodical and logical. So I really resonated with that. But Recently, I've really learned to tap into my heart Mm. and lead from my heart and make decisions from both places. So I really liked that explanation Mm. of recognizing when you need to lead and make decisions with your head versus your heart. Yeah, same. I love this. And I probably am a little bit different. I 
operate from both places quite strongly and but there's always tension for me and so it's nice to know that you do operate from both so that you, that they can be honored separately but it's about creating space and time each day to figure out which one you need to operate from and different tasks require you to operate mm. from a different place and like so that was a bit of a penny drop moment for me yeah. I listened to another podcast last night, actually. Timing is a bit weird, but I can't remember who it was, but she was talking about whenever she comes up against a decision, she has to have a full body yes. So a mm. full body yes, meaning yes from the head, yes from the heart, and yes from the gut. Yes. If there's a decision, she's like, oh, I'm not sure whether I should say yes or no. It's like the head has to say yes, the heart has to say yes, the gut has to say yes. Otherwise, it's a no. And I, I loved that. I loved that. So good. I'm, I'm I moving love forward that too. Yes, hundred percent. Because we sometimes say, "Oh, just like trust your gut," but that's and we do believe that, but it's not often enough. Like yeah. you do have to think through. You know, you've got to yeah, you have to think critically through it. And um, and then I love the the heart and the gut. So yeah definitely going to be using that in the Lady Brains business. And the third one, I really loved when she said, a measure of success is how much the people you love, love you back. Um, And I think this is an interesting one because, you know, we talk about love in such a personal sense, you know, it's like, oh, I love this person. But we rarely speak about love in a business sense. You know, you might like love a product, which is great, but even when you think about people, it's like how often do you like love, you know, someone that you work with um, in business? So I think, think about, think about love in a business context. When you love your customers and when you love your community, they are more likely to show you love back. And it's so easy to show up and to show love to your customers. Like it could be a personal note. It could be a gift with purchase. It could just be like honestly getting on the phone and having a one-to-one conversation. That is an act of love. That's an act of showing up and it creates this trust and this warmth. So I would, I would say, yeah, think about how you can show love in your business. And to me, the way I interpret this is, Mm. you know, traditional measures of success, like money and followers Mm. and all of those things. But this measure of success, you can say love how much your customers and clients or whatever love you, but it's also, for me, it's a measure of how much impact you've had on them because people will love you, your customers, your clients, your employees, your suppliers. They'll love you if you impact their lives in a positive way. So for me, this is another another way of saying mm-hmm. success is measured by your impact, which I loved. 100%. And really, when you think about it, we've kind of spoken about two things here, being able to sell that vision and that why and having and creating impact on someone's life is also like another form of, of love, right? Yeah. So I think, yeah, it comes down to um, being able to understand your why and show love to your customer. You're going to go so far. All you need is love. All you need is love. (laughs) So good. Thank you so much for listening to this show. We would love if you shared this conversation. I think it is relevant to so many founders out there and I know that it will um, really help them in creating a more fulfilling personal life. So screenshot it, send it around, come and follow us on Instagram, lady.brains, and also come into the Facebook group, the Lady Brains Clubhouse, where we have ongoing conversations about some of the best topics that are in these chats. 